You're listening to the Gates Church Podcast. For more information or to support this ministry, please visit thegates.org. Some of you might remember, if you were alive, that in the 80s and uh, early 90s, there was a sitcom on TV called Who's the Boss? Yeah, some of you are fans. Is one of you? or I don't know. I, I, wasn't, I wasn't allowed to watch it because I was a child. So uh, that makes sense. Good parenting skills, mom and dad, wherever you are. Um, but that also means I don't know much about the show, so why am I talking about it? Well, I don't know. I actually mentioned the show to, to Blair this week, and he's like, oh, yeah, that was like a game show, right? Um, so I guess over the sands of time, the show is now shrouded in mystery, which is fine. But I do know that Tony Danza was in it. He's in that, that show, and, and based on the title and a few clips and commercials of the show that I've seen, my guess is that the premise is that there was often a power struggle within the home uh, regarding who is really in charge. Am I right? I, I think I'm right. Like, what, was it the mom in charge, or the manservant Danza, or, or the grandma, or the teenage kids? You know, who's really the boss? Who's really the king of the castle? Right? And um, you have to admit that this is actually a genius sitcom idea. Not only because it creates the ideal setting for perfectly timed comedic moments and drama to ensue, followed by tear-jerking life lessons right before the credits roll. I'm just assuming that's the way it went. Um, but also because the whole idea of the show is relatable, right? It's the premise of who's really in charge and who's obedient to who and who has authority is based on real life, on humanity, right? Everywhere we look. Right? There are never-ending power struggles, authority issues, people trying to climb the ladder, coupled, of course, with abuses of power. We see all of that right? consistently, consistently taking place in our world, in our culture, in our society. We, we, we see those things between our countries, in our workplaces, right? between bosses and employees. We see them in our homes, between parents and kids, kids and parents. right? We see it in our relationships, in our friendships even, in our marriages. We see it in our government, within social and ethnic classes, and especially deep within our hearts. We see the power struggle at play. And if you've ever been felt inclined to open your Bibles, which I hope you have, what you'll find is that the question being asked and wrestled with over and over again to and by mankind, from Genesis all the way to Revelation, is exactly that. Who's the boss? Throughout the whole Bible, we see this, right? We see man battling against God or denying God to gain authority, to be the boss. And we see that power struggle at play between sin and holiness, between pride and obedience, between the law and the heart, between kings and prophets, between nations and empires, between the righteous and the unrighteous, between the spiritual forces of good and evil, between my will and God's will, all arguing, all battling, for supremacy and control, all fighting for the claim to the question, who's the boss? Who gets to sit on the throne? Who's in charge? Who has authority over my life? Who's the king? But according to the Gospels, the battle over that question of who's the boss is pointless and moot because it's already been won. Jesus stakes that claim for himself at the cross. 
In fact, on the Sunday right before Jesus was betrayed and hung on that cross, a day we now call Palm Sunday, which is today, by the way, we're celebrating Palm Sunday today, Jesus announced his kingship to the crowd that had gathered in Jerusalem for the Passover feast. And this is how he announces it. He rides into Jerusalem on a colt or on a donkey that's never been ridden on before. And by doing this, what he's doing is he's symbolically announcing openly and publicly that he's the descendant of King David that was promised by God. So he's finally letting it out that he's the Messiah King, their King. And the crowd responds. The crowd responds. Let's, let's read the account here in Mark 11, 1 to 11. Mark 11, 1 to 11 says, Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately, as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And so they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing, untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So for us today, I think that the significance of this event can be easily missed. But the crowd that witnessed the scene, they understand the culture, so they didn't miss what was happening. Jesus came strolling into Jerusalem on that donkey, right? And they took their cloaks off and and cut down palm branches and laid it before him. Uh, And then they shouted at the top of their lungs, Hosanna! in the highest, Hosanna in the highest, which is a shout of praise to God, right? And then they declared what they were witnessing. They said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. This is what they're proclaiming. In other words, praise God, because this is the promised Messiah King from the line of David who's come to establish his kingdom. They know what's happening. They certainly didn't miss the obvious announcement that Jesus was proclaiming both the kingdom come and himself as the king of that kingdom. Of course, Jesus' message up until that point throughout his whole ministry was that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. And so I'm sure that people had been wondering, whispering, hoping even that he was the king of this kingdom. And so again, they certainly didn't miss the symbolism of him riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, which was actually a practice of royalty for many cultures in that surrounding area, dating back hundreds of years even, actually. So, but more importantly, it was something that King Solomon himself had done. Not only that, but they would have been familiar with the prophecy of the Messiah King in Zechariah 9, which described this exact moment. That's why it says in Matthew 21, 4 verse 5, it says, This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, 
the full of a beast of burden. So Jesus, so the crowd knew what was happening. Jesus also knew what he was doing as well. This was his triumphal entry into the city of David, as we now call it. He was using the the imagery and the prophecy to proclaim himself as the king. And again, the crowd caught on right away. They responded in kind. They they laid out a path for him like a red carpet. They, they, They praised the Lord for it. For that moment, anyways. Because a little later, to the crowd's dismay, I'm sure, instead of heading to the, to the throne room and taking up arms against the Romans to establish Israel as a sovereign nation for the, for the hundredth time or whatever, which is probably what they expected and desired, instead of doing that, he veered off the path and went towards the temple. Because Jesus knew that he wasn't there to overthrow the empire of Rome, but rather to bring peace with God. To be a king of a better and eternal kingdom for the glory of God. So yes, he's the king. He's the king. He's proclaiming it outright. He's telling the world. But as he went to the temple... Instead of the throne, he was proclaiming that he's not the kind of king they expected or wanted. He's proclaiming that his kingdom is not an earthly one. And the result, of course, was that within the week, the shout from the crowd quickly changed from Hosanna in the highest to crucify him. The Pharisees and scribes actually ended up using Jesus' claim as king, among other things, as one of the reasons to finally convince Pontius Pilate that he should be crucified. Because the claim to be king and God was for Caesar alone. Anyone else was killed for it, right, as a, as a traitor or whatever. And Jesus knew this. He knew, he knew what would happen the moment that he revealed who he was. Which is why he'd spent a big chunk of his, his life in ministry telling people that his time had not yet come, and, and, and telling them to keep his, his miracles a secret and the truth of who he was as the Messiah a secret. He keeps telling people that. But Palm Sunday was the day the secret finally came out. His time had now come to be king. But of course, he wouldn't be crowned king the way kings are usually crowned. Right, through a royal coronation ceremony with, with reverent and cheering crowds. For Jesus, it would go much differently because he was a different kind of king, a better king. In fact, his coronation would actually be bloody and brutal and humiliating. Let's go through that. Spoo did a great job of reading that, but let's just review it. So first we see he's questioned by the chief priests in the Sanhedrin about his claims to be king of the Jews. Right Then he's questioned by, by Pilate about his claim to be king. But Jesus, of course, says nothing except you said so, and my kingdom is not of this world. And then after Pilate offers to release him to the crowd, because Pilate's concerned with, with the crowd. He doesn't want the crowd to be angry at him. So he says, I'll release him to you guys. And they're like, no, we want Barabbas instead. We want this murderer instead. So then Jesus is sent away to be tortured by the Roman guard where he's crowned, but with a crown of thorns. 
which cuts into his skin. He's given a stick to act as a scepter, and then a purple robe is placed over him as well. And I don't, I don't know if anyone's ever seen a, a coronation, a royal coronation ceremony, or seen it depicted in a movie or TV show or something, but that's usually what takes place, right? The king is given a scepter of, of justice and power, a purple robe of authority and nobility, and then a crown would be placed on their head to mark them as king or, or queen or whatever. So what's happening then, in, in this moment, amidst the laughter and, and, and the spitting of the Roman guards, this is part of Jesus' coronation ceremony. As king, he's got the crown, he's got the scepter, he's got the robe placed over him. Except there's no reverence, there, there's no honor. It's all unjust, it's all torture, it's all humiliation, because after they've clothed him in the likeness of the, of the king, right, the soldiers then mock him, and then they spit on him, and they pretend to honor him like he's Caesar himself. Right? They're making fun of him. And, and I should point out that this practice of the Roman guard that's mentioned here is common for Roman soldiers. There's plenty of historical documents detailing events like this where Roman soldiers would dress people up, insurrectionists or whatever, dress them up as the king and pretend to worship them. So this is historically accurate, what's happening here to Jesus. This is something that they do. But the mockery doesn't end there. Then, after he's nailed to the cross and lifted up, what does Pilate do? Pilate instructs his guards to nail a sign upon the cross that reads, The King of the Jews. And while the chief priests are unhappy about it, as it says in John, because they, they wanted it to say, you know, right instead, the one who claimed to be the King of the Jews. But Pilate's like, no, I'm not going to change it. I wrote what I wrote, he says. But still, the crowd and the soldiers, they just play off of it anyways. And they start, they start yelling, well, if you're the king, then save yourself. If you're the king of Israel, come down from there. If you're the son of God, then bring yourself down so we can believe. So there's no hosannas. There's no legitimate hail the kings. There's no praise the lords. Right? There's just mockery. The, the whole coronation is one of suffering and humiliation. But the irony of the whole thing as we talked about last week as well, is that no one actually understood what was happening. Their jokes and their mocking was actually mixed with words of truth. No one there understood that this is exactly the way that it was supposed to go. No one understood that this king was better even than King David, and unlike any before, wasn't in it for himself, but that he would lay aside his very nature and his life for the glory of God. No one understood that he's the kind of king who'll go to the depths of death and back to save us. No one understood that it's exactly because he's the rightful king that he won't save himself, but he will give himself up. No one in that moment understood that in doing so, in dying on the cross, that this was his coronation as king. That through the cross, Jesus would actually earn the right and status as the king of kings and lord of lords. But that's exactly what happened. Jesus became the lowest, humbly obeyed and glorified God even unto death. And as a result, God set him in the highest place. 
read a couple passages about that. Hebrews 2 verse 9 says, But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. Why? Because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In Philippians 2, 8 to 11, says, In being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God, because he did that, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So why is he our king? Because of the cross. Because of the cross, Jesus was crowned with glory and honor. Because of the cross, Jesus was highly exalted and given authority over every name in heaven, on earth, and in hell. Because of the cross, Jesus, because Jesus suffered the pangs of death for us, every tongue will one day confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Or as Revelation 5 verse 12 says, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Because the perfect, innocent, humble Lamb of God willingly took our place at the cross. He and He alone became worthy to receive all glory and honor and praise. He alone earned the right to sit at the right hand of God the Father and be named King of Kings and Lord of Lords. As Jesus tells his disciples after his resurrection from the grave, in Luke 24:26, he says, Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? So at the cross, Jesus was officially crowned king, not just of the Jews, but of all creation. But at the cross, Jesus also showed us that though the glory is his and his alone, he obtained it not only for himself, but so that those who know him can share in it and take part in it. And that's one of the most incredible things. Jesus prayed this the night before he died. John 17, 24 says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory. Right? Normally when we think of earthly kings or, or presidents or whatever, even, even bosses sometimes, right? we tend to think of, of you know, people that lord over us, or, or maybe even power-hungry tyrants, or, or self-serving authoritarian rulers. But even for the sake of argument, there, there are nice and honorable rulers and kings too, right? But in any case, this is how a monarchy tends to work. They rule, and the people serve them, right? They make their citizens and their servants do their bidding, pay taxes to their king, work for him, fight and die for him, serve him, Right? That's how it works. When it comes to monarchy, everything that's done in the kingdom is for the purpose of pleasing and appeasing the king in order to gain his favor and gain his reward or whatever, right? But Jesus is actually the opposite of an earthly king. 
Because instead of demanding our service, instead of demanding that we earn his favor, he served us. He died for us. He paid for our sins. He appeased the wrath of God for us. And not only that, but he achieved the crown of glory for us as well. So that that we might know it, enjoy it, and be with him in glory. At the cross, Jesus shows that he's a king who gives freely and sacrificially. So again, to to the crowd's dismay on that Palm Sunday, Jesus wasn't the king they wanted. But to our delight, he's the king that we need. A king that saves us from what truly oppresses us and gives us freedom to walk in light. A king that promises promises us that when we seek first his kingdom, all that we need will be given to us. A king that proclaims, lay down your burdens upon me and I will give you rest. A king that promises that he will give us justice, that he'll come to judge the earth in righteousness according to what he's done. A king that says, I served you. I gave you redemption. I made a way for you to be forgiven of your sin and adopted as children of God the Father, welcomed as citizens of the kingdom, a great kingdom that transcends and breaks through the borders of nations and and skin colors and cultures and social constructs and age demographics and time even. A kingdom of light, of hope, peace, and joy. That's the kind of king that I'm willing to follow, that I'm ready to follow, that I'm excited to follow and trust in, right? A king of grace and mercy and and, and selflessness and faithfulness, right? A king of unrelenting love, the king of glory, the king who's for us, the only king then who's truly, truly worthy. And that's the point of all this. At the cross, Jesus was not only crowned as king, but he proved that he's the only one worthy of the title. Because he showed us what it truly means to both follow God and be like God, to empty himself, to give up all he is in love. As Jesus once proclaimed to his disciples, whoever loses his life for my sake... We'll save it. And that's what Jesus did. And he not only did it for us, but he also modeled it for us at the cross as well. And we definitely need that example because as we talked about at the beginning of the message, right, humanity has a tendency of doing the opposite of that. Of trying to obtain our crowns for ourselves, right, by acquiring success and wealth and, and, and things and popularity and status, by doing good things even sometimes, or by following our own desires, by, by trying to find autonomy so that we can be in charge of our own lives. In fact, the root of mankind's desire for control, to, to have power, to be in charge, to get our own way, to distrust authority, to, to build our own kingdoms, to be the boss of other people, and the master of our own destinies, right? The root of that is found deep within our heart, or rather, in our pride. Look back to Genesis, right? This is how the, the serpent tricked Adam and Eve into disobeying God, right? By convincing them that God is mean, 
by convincing them that God is horrible at being the boss of them because he's actually holding them back from letting them be in charge of their own lives and being their own gods. So the serpent convinced them that by eating of the tree that they could be their own gods. And they like the sound of that. They like the sound of having authority and power of being a king. The unfortunate thing there, as you can read about in Hebrews 2 if you're so inclined, is that their prideful action to gain control, in their prideful action to gain control, they actually lost control. And they lost everything that God had given them. That's the sad part of the whole story. Right? God had already created creation for the sole purpose of sharing his glory and presence with them, of giving them authority over creation. Hebrews 2 writes that Adam and Eve, humanity, were already crowned with glory and honor. Humanity was already crowned with glory and honor. They were given authority over all the earth, but pride drove them to want more. They wanted to become as God, and the result is that they became the opposite of God. The result is that they became slaves to sin. During one of our conversations this week, Pastor Blair, who's not here this morning, he's skipping, slipping in. I don't know. I'm just kidding. He's, he's on vacation in Vancouver, so that's fine. Anyways, he remarked, though, sin in fact, is when we believe the lie that we're the boss and God's not. I thought that was pretty wise. I'm like, I'm going to write that down. I'm I'm quoting you. But just in case you don't believe Blair, because he's not like some renowned theologian or anything, but you should believe Blair, but just in case, here's a little Martin Luther to back that up. He writes, the sin underneath all our sins is to trust the lie of the serpent that we cannot trust the love and grace of Christ and must take matters into our own hands. This is the sin of pride that's alive and prospering in the hearts of man today. This is the sin of pride that we wrestle with every day, don't we? Which is why Jesus proclaims in Matthew 16, 26, he reminds us, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Bottom line, building our own kingdoms is not the way to glory. Especially eternal glory. The American dream is not the way to glory. Rather, Jesus showed us the way to glory by giving it all up for the glory of God and trusting in God to raise him up. The last shall become first, as Jesus said. The least shall become the greatest. And again, only Jesus, only Jesus, the perfect, unblemished Lamb of God, accomplished this. Only Jesus was able to re-obtain for humanity what we had lost in the garden, that crown of glory and honor. 
the authority over creation. Again, how did he do that? By humbling himself in the form of a man, by becoming completely obedient unto God, even to the point of death on the cross. Which means, again, that he is the only one worthy to be king. Therefore, to put it simply and bluntly, we owe him our fealty. We owe him our allegiance. We owe him our worship. Because only through him, only through his perfect work, can we share in that glory once again. And that's really what this all comes down to, right? The question isn't, isn't who's the boss or who's the king anymore. Because Jesus is. Jesus is on that throne, whether we believe it or not, whether we follow him or not. It doesn't change the fact that Jesus is and will remain the King of kings and Lord of lords. Both his resurrection and his ascension confirm this truth. He's the king and nothing can change that. Again, our beliefs and our, and our opinion won't change it. What, who we worship won't change that. For example, many Americans today, they publicly deny that, that Trump's their president. Right? You see that all the time on Twitter. But the truth is, whether they like it or not, he is their president. Right? Their dislike of him and even their, their denial and refusal to acquiesce to that reality doesn't change the fact that he's the president, unfortunately. But my point is this, that the actual question of who the boss is over our souls, over life and death, over this earth, over eternity, or rather who the king and lord is, isn't based on who we personally choose to follow or not follow. This isn't up for debate based on our allegiance or our beliefs because the matter was already settled once and for all 2,000 years ago at the cross. He's the king. And as Jesus declared on that Palm Sunday, even if we don't worship him as such, what will happen? The rocks will cry out. He's the king. So the question is then, not if he's the king. The question is, do we personally trust and follow him as the king? Examine yourselves this morning. Who or what are we actually surrendering to when it comes to decisions we make throughout our day and the things we decide to do? and the things we decide to invest in. Who's driving those actions? The words, we, the words we speak, the relationships we pursue, the tweets we tweet, right? Who or what compels us from the moment we get up in the morning to when we go to bed? Is it Jesus? Or is it our flesh? Or is it something else? An idol? sin, pride, what are we actually surrendering to? Are we slaves to sin or slaves to righteousness? Timothy Keller writes, it's not a matter that you can't trust in Christ. It's a matter of you refusing to distrust yourself. 
In other words, Jesus proved that if there's any king that's, that's trustworthy, if there's any king that's faithful and, and loving and on our side, who's willing to do whatever it takes to see us enter into his kingdom and have what we need, if there's any king worth following, it's him. He proved that at the cross. So that's not the issue here. The issue is whether or not we're willing to set aside ourselves and surrender to Jesus. To give up our lives and pick up our cross and follow him and him alone. That's what Paul writes in Philippians. That have this mind among you. He's saying, be like Jesus. Who though he was equal with God, he set that aside. Right? Think about it. Jesus was already there. Right? Jesus already had the power and glory and status as a person of the triune God, but yet he humbled himself into the likeness of man and trusted completely, not in his own will, not in his own desires, but in the will of God the Father to come through for him. And we're not even close to being equal with God. We don't have as much to surrender that Jesus did. But yet, are we willing to even do that? To set aside whatever control we think we have and, and, and want and whatever righteousness we think we've obtained in exchange for what Jesus desires to give us and do through us. And he's calling us to do that. And he gives freely of what he's done for us. But will we surrender to him as king? And if we think we have... Do our lives reflect that? Does the Spirit truly guide our steps and our words and our actions? Do we seek His kingdom first before building our own? Do we obey His commandments? Do we bring glory to Him in our lives and, and reflect His kingdom with all that we do and all that we say? Do we build one another up in the Lord? Jared Wilson writes, Being fully devoted to Jesus isn't something you do by accident. You must be intentional. You must empty yourself and find fullness in the grace of Christ. You must pick up your cross daily. You must deny self-glory and make much of the one who gave his life for you. I'm excited because after, after this series, we're going to be going through the epistles of John. And then in the summer, we're going to be studying the fruit of the Spirit. And so we're going to be learning more of what it looks like to follow Jesus as Christians. And until then, bottom line here is that Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He sits at the right hand of God. He has authority and sovereignty and dominion over every name in heaven and on earth. And one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Enemies and allies of God, sinners and saints alike, will all know that Jesus is the King, and that only he is worthy of the name. So as we conclude this morning, I want to remind us, as the church, as citizens of his kingdom, that this is the call for those who truly follow him. This is the call for those who submit to his authority as king. Matthew twenty-eight, seventeen to 20 says this, And when they saw him, 
They worshipped him. This is after Jesus' resurrection. And, and uh, when the disciples saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came to them and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The glorious and sovereign King of kings and Lord of lords is with us. So let's go forth as ambassadors to the King and proclaim Him and proclaim His kingdom come. And like the crowd on that first Palm Sunday, let's ascribe to Him the glory that's due to His name and worship Him as the King for the glory of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we reflect on that first Palm Sunday, as Jesus proclaimed himself as the King, Lord, as, as the crowd shouted, Hosanna, blessed be the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Lord, we can now look back and see that they didn't quite understand what was happening. They didn't fully get it, Lord. But I thank you that as we stand here today, that we, that, that, that secret, that mystery has been revealed to us, that Jesus is a, is a greater and better king than we could ever have imagined. A king that gave his life for us. A king that's with us. A king that's for us and loves us. Jesus, I pray that through the strength and, and grace of your Holy Spirit, Lord, that we would be able to, to live as stewards, as ambassadors to the King, Lord. That our lives would, would, would be lived in, in surrender to the King. That we would trust you to lift us up, Lord. I pray that if anyone here this morning is, is having a hard time with, with surrendering, with, with giving up a, an addiction or, or, or a sin, or, or their, their pride is, is getting in the way of, of surrendering to you this morning, Lord, I pray that, that right now even, Lord, that you would break those chains, that, that we would be able to come before you freely surrendered, and that we would know the glory we would know and experience and be with you in glory this morning, Lord. And Lord, as we acknowledge you as King, Lord, I pray that we, we do that with, with, with humble and thankful hearts this morning. Especially as we go into communion, as we remember that your body was broken and your blood was shed for us, Lord. I pray that we do that with humble and repentant hearts, but hearts filled with joy and thankfulness that you are a good and gracious King. Amen.